Good morning, Hillsdale, Michigan. Good to be with you on this Tuesday morning. It's November 12th, and it's a cold one out there, but we're here in the studios at Hillsdale College's Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Ben Dietrich. And I'm Alex Nestor. And we're here along with our producer, Andrew Nell, to bring you the morning news on American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. It's a big day for us here. I hope you had a great Veterans Day weekend. Later on in the show, we're going to hear an incredible story about a speechwriter in the White House, Peter Robinson, and how he wrote the speech, the tear down this wall speech that Ronald Reagan gave at Berlin and how that came to be. That's all going to make more sense later on in the show. We're going to get to it. Everything we're going to talk about today is going to kind of build up to that moment because I think it all kind of fits with what's happening in the world today. And um, Alex, later in the show, is going to tell us a little bit about what's happening in Hong Kong, the struggles for freedom that still exist well across this globe, all right here on American View this morning, on this morning hour. So, like I said, we're coming to you live from our studios. The first thing, though, that we need to talk about, uh, somebody that we've focused on a bit on this show that, you know, if you know me, you know I'm a fan of her. And that's former ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. She has her new book out today, just released this morning, number one book right now on Amazon to be bought, and that's with all due respect. Uh, It's named after her famous line in which, in an interview, I believe it was with CNN, but it could have been with one of the other major networks, she was asked about a disagreement that she was having with some other members of the White House uh, with regards to, she believed that they were going to be placing sanctions on Russia, and she said something along the lines of, with all due respect, I don't make mistakes. She's known for bombastic statements like that, for her strong leadership in the United Nations. She was also governor um, in her home state uh, of South Carolina. And so we're going to you know, talk about all of that. Um, but I wanna, I've want i actually purchased the book this morning. I had it on pre-order. already listened to the first um, chapters on Audible. And uh, I've got the digital version up here right now. I want to share with you some key parts of the book that I think are very interesting with regards to um, what she said about her time in the White House. There are some big points that can be drawn away, and there's about three of them I want to make today. The first one is the one that the media has been talking about, and there's two others that you're not going to hear on most of the other main channels because they just go for probably the you know the biggest bombastic story they can find. We're going to give you that, though, here on American View. The first one, though, has to do with her relationship with the other cabinet members she was working with. First, uh, Chief of Staff, former Chief of Staff John Kelly, former general, and then also Rex Tillerson, who was the first secretary of state for President Trump. He was a former CEO of Exxon as well. Both of these guys are big, you know, honcho guys. And um, the disagreements she had early on in the presidency with them are very interesting and I think provide a lot of insight uh, about what has been happening in the White House. Now, if you remember, John Kelly left. He was only scheduled to be there for, you know, about a year or so. But, you know, recently in the news, he's come out because he said, um, you know, I wish I would have stayed because it took somebody like me to tell the president no um, when he needed to be told no. And that he basically said in an interview, if I would have stayed, these you know, impeachment hearings probably wouldn't be happening right now because I would have prevented um, what happened with Ukraine. That was a big story. Everybody kind of said, oh, shoot, you know, the president's former chief of staff is out there kind of putting him in a tough position. This doesn't look good for the president. What does this mean? And, you know, all of us were kind of scratching our heads a bit, trying to piece this together. Nikki Haley helps us piece this together a little bit better. It's no secret that what's been happening in the White House since Trump, President Trump has been elected, there's been a lot of competition among his top advisors. I mean, he started it by stacking the office with big generals, um, you know, people that had a lot of accomplishments, 
Um, some people were experts from part of an old conservative political class. You had the Steve Bannons as well that were kind of part of the ideas that helped him get elected. You have the Kellyanne Conway who, you know, she's managed to stay there through, through all of it. And then you have people like Nikki Haley who I think really kind of saw the president's vision and, and followed after it a long ways and disagreed, but not in the same way that people like Rex Tillerson and John Kelly disagreed. Um, so I want to play you a clip from an interview uh, that she had on CBS on Sunday in which she describes a key chapter of her book in which um, she says that the cabinet members of the White House, Rex Tillerson and John Kelly, kind of cornered her, not once but multiple times, but in one instance they basically sat her down and said, you should get on board with us um, in, in basically going around the president or slowing down policies that are just aren't good for the American people. They said that basically that they knew better than the president and that she should help um, understand that, and they tried to basically, um, both of them together, uh, you know, get her to get on board with this. We're going to hear what she said on her interview, and then I'm going to actually read you some pieces from her new book, with all due respect. And then the Secretary of State Tillerson went on to tell you the reason he resisted the president's decisions was because if he didn't, people would die. Do you memorialize that conversation? It definitely happened? It absolutely happened. And instead of saying that to me, they should have been saying that to the president, not asking me to join them on their sidebar plan. It should have been, go tell the president what your differences are and quit if you don't like what he's doing. But to undermine a president is really a very dangerous thing. And it goes against the Constitution and it goes against what the American people want. And it was was offensive. All right. So that gives us an idea there. Um, of what Nikki Haley's been saying. Now, since then, it's kind of been kind of interesting. Rex Tillerson has denied this conversation ever happened. John Kelly has said something different. He's basically said, if you're accusing me of, um, you know, disagreeing with the president as I should have as chief of staff, then include me guilty as charged. <laughs> so he's basically saying, yeah, this, this probably did happen. Um, but he seems still very righteous in that he did the right thing. So what she says in the book, I'll read you this, this small chapter, or this small excerpt here that I highlighted. Um, Kelly and Tillerson confided in me that when they resisted the president, they weren't being insubordinate. They were trying to save the country. It was their decisions, not the president's, that were in the best interests of America, they said. The president didn't know what he was doing. And then she quotes Kelly as saying, I don't even think he realizes what the legislative branch is and that members of Congress are elected by the people, Kelly said. But it wasn't the legislative branch that these men wanted the president to defer to. It was them. So that's that's kind of a big part of the book there. And, you know, in another interview on Hannity last night, Haley says, oh, well, this is just, you know, she, this is just one page in the book. Um, you know, you got to look at the full book, too. You know, she, she says this is all absolutely true. But, you know, read the whole book. I got to be honest, though, I, I started it this morning, and this seems to be a theme that you see throughout the book. Um, the first prologue, the introduction, is her about to get on a flight. She wants to go to Vienna, Austria, um, my hometown, so shout out there to all our listeners in Vienna. She wants to go to Vienna, Austria to meet with the UN um, and with the IAEA, which is stationed there at the UN headquarters, because she wants to look more into the inspectors that are supposed to be investigating, inspecting the Iranian nuclear um, Deposits to make sure that they're not, you know, weaponizing the uranium. She wants to talk with the Americans on that that part of the 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 UN. And Tillerson basically refuses and says, "You shouldn't go." And you know, they have this argument in, on a poolside with the president at his beach hotel in Florida. And she says it gets ugly. She said that you know, one reporter called it World War Three, 
and that there was constantly kind of a belittling by Rex Tillerson that he knew better not just than her, but also by the president. Now, this excerpt of the book that everybody's talking about comes later in the book where she talks about, you know, what she was kind of up against. And, um, you know, this is kind of the big bombshell part because it's Tillerson and Kelly kind of planning together. And what she says this is regards to and what their idea of saving the country, I want to read this one more excerpt here so you have a better idea of what we're talking about. Their idea of saving the country was staying in the Iran nuclear deal, staying in the Paris Climate Agreement, and keeping the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv, just to name a few. These are major policy decisions in which they disagree with the president. Their obligation in those situations to was, was to express their disagreement to the president. And if they couldn't change his mind, they needed to carry out his wishes or leave. But that's not what they were doing. And she's, you know, she goes on to say, I was just so shocked um, you know, she understood more than anybody how important it is to win an election. And what she saw was something being disloyal to the people of the United States that elected him. You know, um, and now you kind of see this this full idea is really unpacked of the deep state. Um, you have even people within the own Trump White House that it's not really the personality of the president that they seem to be disagreeing with, but the policies themselves. And they blame it on the policy. You know, they blame it on his personality. They say, oh, he's not... He's not an expert. He doesn't know politics. He doesn't know how we do things in D.C. People will die is literally what Rex Tillerson says. People will die. Nobody, you know, and, and Haley kind of scoffs at this later on. Um, but, you know, now I think we have a better understanding here because it is really shocking. I think that, that you, you should understand that these people that disagreed with the president or have, you know, the leakers that come out in books like, you know, um, there's a lot of books that have come out about this stuff. You know, Fire and Fury, I think, is one that came out by Bob Woodward. Um, they all have their own agendas. And it seems that there were a lot of people. Trump, one of the things he struggled with is to find people that saw his views of policy, the way in which he saw them, and even if they disagreed, to, you know, work in accordance with his policy. But what he has done is changed the way the Republican Party operates, made some major different decisions in policy that, you know, He's had to kind of drag along people that might have disagreed. Um, it's interesting to see, don't you think? Yeah, I think what's really interesting here, Ben, is um, in particular this notion of um, Tillerson and Kelly thinking that they are the ones that know better, know best exactly what to do in these different situations. And if you know what they think is best doesn't happen, then people will die, um, that they're the ones in charge of saving the country. I think that attitude is something that's really gross to see um, people thinking that, you know, they know exactly what's right uh, for our country and completely, like you said, undermining um, a president. I guess the question I have for you, Ben, is if, if these people can undermine um, our president, I wonder how um, Haley felt in these um, same circumstances being, you know, a young woman in these same rooms. Um, I She seems, to me, she seems kind of like, uh, you know, uh, very powerful woman that wouldn't necessarily uh, be bothered by these things. But did she mention any of that in the book? She does. And, and then that, that kind of comes later. You know, she talks about it throughout it. Um, and it, it, there's a theme there of the type of leader she is. And that's kind of the next point I wanted to move towards, which was there are some very interesting similarities this book draws light to. Because the book's not just about her, what she did in the White House, but, you know, kind of what type of leader she was in her relationship with the president. And I think what you see here is that they share a lot of similarities in the types of leaders they are. And, and the way she describes this that's kind of interesting is she, she says, um, you know, she describes 
in case you don't know this, she did not support the president in the primary. She actually supported President Marco Rubio. She had known Trump a little bit before. He had sent her gold envelopes with campaign donations that she <laughs> talks about, you know, and, and news clippings after she'd win that she that would say things like, you know, you're a winner, Nikki, apparently, which sounds just like Trump. Um, but that, you know, she talks about the fact that even when they were, you know, they had some disagreements or she, you know, she would say things out about the president, like he needs to release his tax returns when she was supporting Marco Rubio. And he would go on Twitter and he would tweet something um, that would come along the lines of uh, he would say something. I got the tweet right here. Uh, this people of South Carolina are embarrassed by Nikki Haley. And uh, what she says about this is that she learned quickly that when Trump gets kicked, he hollers. But that he doesn't necessarily take it personally. The way she explains this is, you know, um, you could be angry. She could, he could tweet at you one day and three days later be golfing with you if you guys make up. But if you attack him, he's going to attack back. And she understood this. And she didn't always agree with the, necessarily the words he used. But she said something later. Uh, you know, she retweets back to this tweet that he has. And she says, Nikki Haley says to Donald Trump, at real Donald Trump, bless your heart. She writes in her book, quote, it was Southern woman quote, code. Three polite words that let the receiver know you mean something not so polite. <laughs> um, and she makes the point that uh, there was a strange kind of respect between them because they both understood they were tough and they were going to say what they thought and that they he was the same. And it's so interesting because, look, they're definitely very different in the sense that she is more eloquent, I think, and she, and she you know, is known for a lot of um, denouncing of a lot of things that the president... Um, kind of get often gets attacked for some of his inflammatory language. She's not afraid to tell the president what she thinks. Now, some people out there might say, why can't we just have Nikki Haley be president then? Because she can be (laughs) bombastic. She can be the conservative that can, you know, tell liberals when they're talking nonsense. She talks to Russia and she says, you know, she calls them out. In her book, she says, you know, they said that she, they told her at the beginning, kind of what you were talking about, Alex, that they thought she was stupid when she came to the United Nations and that she was this innocent person that had no foreign policy experience, they would walk all over her. And by the end, they were saying things to her like, you know, geez, I, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you can say the things you do and then still get your way. <laughs> and, and, you know, she writes about this in the book and what you, you learn and, and what she talks about is, is, is that the struggle that she has, and it kind of goes back to this woman part, um, she has faced struggles She's an Indian American. She has faced attacks from both the left and the right based on her race, based on her gender. There was even a rumor um, in the in the Trump White House that uh, that or not a rumor in the White House, excuse me, a New York Times reporter asserted that she was having an affair with the president because she had been following him around a bunch of times on Air Force One. And this was one of those non-stories that just had no evidence whatsoever. She'd been on Air Force One once with the president. And this is this is the New York Times story that they ran for a bit until it was <laughs> disproved. And she talks about the fact that, you know, as a, as a woman, yes, you do face an uphill battle. And she talks about the challenges that that, that comes with. Um, but that that's not the way you, you should not see yourself as a, as a victim. And that's that's something that she said has been very clear and dear to her since the part that she was um, in politics. Um, she says, much more than who we are is what we do. The truth is to do what you want to do, whether it's to succeed in business or politics or to help people, you have to push through the fear. This is the one of the greatest lessons I've learned in my life. Women are just as good at about everything we do. We just need to take a chance and not be afraid of what is new and intimidating. When I embrace a new challenge, instead of avoiding it, I'm always amazed about how much stronger and confident I've become. 
And um, she really kind of condemns identity politics in the book. If we had more time, we would talk about all that. But unfortunately, we don't. But all I would say is, you know, once again, for those that would say, hey, why can't we just have Nikki Haley as president? I think it's important to realize that she came along to her rise of power. or You know, she came into her position she is today based on the experiences she had in the Trump administration. She herself did not even see the Trump phenomenon fully. Her mom did, interestingly enough. Her mom supported not her candidate she was endorsing, Marco Rubio, but Donald Trump. And it took her until basically the election to, to put everything together. She talks about a lot of hunches she had. Maybe she stands more favorable to the president in this book uh, during that time than she actually was. But it's, it's very interesting. I think it's important to understand that I think it took a Donald Trump and his kind of bombastic ways to bring about these new types of statesmen that we see today. Now, um, I want to transition here. You're listening to America View, Radio Free Hillsdale. I'm Ben Dietrich, and along with my co-host, Alex Nestor. Alex, it was Veterans Day this last weekend. We're going to talk about Peter Robinson's speech, Ronald Reagan, all that uh, in a bit. He gave a great speech. Um, uh, he wrote this speech, the tear down this wall speech. But first, we need to understand that, you know, it's Veterans Day and we do honor those that fight. But it's also important to remember what we fight for in this country and that the struggle for freedom, you know, despite things like the Berlin Wall now being gone, still exists. Tell us a little bit about what's happening around the world. For sure. So first of all, shout out to all of our veterans out there. Um, you know, my father is my uh, favorite veteran, so I always like to give him a little shout out on Veterans Day. Um, but it, um, the fall of the wall um, happened on November 9th of 1989. Um, you know, obviously it took a long time for that monstrous concrete uh, barrier to come down. But that was that was the you know first day. That's the day that we uh, cel- celebrate the fall of the wall um, in the West. And um, it, it is, it was a monumentous occasion for all pro-democratic and, and pro-freedom uh, people across the globe. Um, so you think of like our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation. Um, this wall, when it was put up in the, in the late 60s, that's, you know, right when our, that's when my parents were born. And it was something that, and, and they, you know, t- tell me this repeatedly, uh, it, it kind of like just marked their, you know, generation. It was something they they never thought that they were going to see this wall fall um, in their lifetime, and they did. And my dad was in the army, and he was actually stationed in Germany um, and landed in Germany on the day the wall fell. So he was able wow. to see that, and he was able to hold pieces of that in his hands. And he just remembers, like, you know, looking or watching TV as a kid and seeing that wall up. Um, just that image that was in his mind of like this is you know, this ominous, huge undestructible, uh, powerful thing. And then he had like crumbling pieces of it in his hands. Um, just a very, very powerful image there. Um, but, uh, you know, unfortunately that's not the end. It wasn't the end of totalitarianism. Um, today there are plenty of examples of that across the entire, uh, world. You know, you could say Russia still, you could say, um, leaders in Venezuela, like we've talked about, um, but I think one of the most notable, Ben, is what's going on in China right now. Um, I think for our generation, um, d- at least to me, and tell me if you think differently, but China kind of seems almost like um, that type of, of indestructible power. Um, you know, w- what is the United States to do about it? What are they to do about um, the people there? So, you know, this started... Six months ago, 
uh, what's going on in Hong Kong right now, all the protests started six months ago with this extradition bill that would have uh, allowed Hong Kongers to be extradited back to China um, to be tried. Um, so this weekend, two important developments have kind of uh, happened in this. Um, of course, the extradition bill was repealed or removed um, in early September, which you would have think, you know, you would think that would have quelled the protest, but it did not. Um, just this past weekend, um, a third individual was shot by a Hong Kong police officer. He's in critical condition in a hospital. His name is Patrick Chow, and he's 21 years old. Um, another thing that happened this weekend, some pro-democracy legislators were either arrested or sent notice of their arrest on Saturday. Um, and this is coming about two weeks prior to an election. So very clearly, um, <laughs> the fight against totalitarianism is far from over. And I think China is, you know, the next big example um, of, of this. And I guess this is pretty bold to say, but I think we should all keep an eye on China. Um, you know, no government can ever fully suppress the human spirit. They can imprison individuals and kill them and silence them and track them with technology now. Um, but we can't, you know, we can't be stopped. And I think, you know, we need to keep an eye on China. And China is like the USSR, in my opinion, of our generation. So. And, we, and we've seen in the last couple of years, um, Americans, I think, start to wake up to that a little bit. Yeah. And in, in the realities of the, the world outside of us. When we get back, we'll hear from Peter Robinson. Uh, he gave a great speech here at college in 2011 about how he wrote the Tear Down This Wall speech, the Berlin Wall. This has been American View and Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Welcome back to American View on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Ben Dietrich along with my co-host. Alex Nestor. <laughs> and we are continuing our coverage here. It's just the day after Veterans Day. And, uh, you know, if you missed our first half, you want to hear about Nikki Haley's new book, check us out on SoundCloud, American View WRFH, uh, or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our Twitter handles. Feel free to give us a tweet at Ben underscore D-I-E-T-E-T. At Ben underscore D-I-E-T-D or at Alex Nestor 20. Um, so check us out there as well. So we're going to go to Peter Robinson now. He gave a speech um, at the CCA in 2011 about Ronald Reagan when he, he wrote the Tear Down This Wall speech. And so he tells us the story of how he wrote this speech. Give you some context. This guy, when he joined the White House um, speechwriting staff, had he had never written a speech before. Kind of crazy stuff. He was 26 years old, um, and the way he landed this job is funny in and of itself. But that's another story. Um, and, and the other thing that's interesting is that he says that the way in which they wrote the speeches, to give you some context, is that it was all kind of based off Ronald Reagan's first famous speech, "A Time for Choosing." And that voice that he would write, Reagan wrote in so many speeches when he was still writing his speeches, is what they would always use to emulate. Um, in, in the speeches they would write. So now we go to Peter Robinson because we don't have time to hear his full story of how this came to be on this special Veterans Day American View episode. Here we go to Peter. In June of 1987, I've now been on the staff for four years. In June of 1987, I was assigned to write a speech that the president was to deliver in Berlin. And here's my total guidance from the senior staff. 
He'll stand in front of the Berlin Wall. The Brandenburg Gate will be visible behind him. The audience will range from 10 to 40,000. We think he probably ought to speak for about half an hour. And given the setting, he should talk about foreign policy. I flew to Berlin with what was called the pre-advance, the advance team that would work with the Berlin security, the, uh, the West Berlin press, figure out the good, best camera angles, and so I tagged along. And I was a speechwriter with a serious problem because I needed material. First stop, I went to the place where the president would speak. And you just, it's gone now, the wall is gone. And thank goodness. But if you were there... If you weren't there, it's very hard. You have to engage in a deep act of imagination. The felt weight of history. To see that wall, to see little flags where people had been killed trying to escape over that wall, overhear the Reichstag, now empty, the German parliament building, still bearing the scars of shell marks from the Red Army invasion of Berlin, And on the other side, climb up the observation platform, on the other side, the historic center of Berlin lay within East Berlin. So you have all these once magnificent buildings and the street is dead. Maybe at the far end of the avenue, a few people walking, but in the foreground, nothing but soldiers. What could he say? What could I write that he could say that, that that, that would match the moment, the sense of moment of the setting? Next event. Robinson pays a visit to the ranking American diplomat, a man called John Kornblum, who became our ambassador to Germany under Bill Clinton. And he was then the consul, I think that was his title. In any event, he was the ranking American in West Berlin. And he was full of ideas about what Ronald Reagan should not say. (laughs) It was very clear that the idea of a visit to his city by Ronald Reagan made him uneasy. Don't make him sound like an anti-communist cowboy. No commie bashing. This is a very sophisticated city. It's the most left-leaning of all the major Western... Larry's laughing, but as Larry knows, it's true. Larry's laughing because otherwise he'd weep. Uh, And Kornblum said, and whatever you don't, make a big thing about the wall. They've gotten used to it. Next event, that afternoon, I was given a ride over the wall in a United States Army helicopter. And as imposing as the wall seemed from inside West Berlin, these 13-foot-tall slabs of concrete with barbed wire across the top, from the air, it was worse. Because from the air, you could see what lay on the eastern side. Dog runs, guard towers, large swaths of very carefully raked gravel couldn't quite work that out, so I asked through the walkie-talkie, I asked the pilot what that was for, and he explained that the gravel was for the young soldiers. Each of them knew that if it crossed his mind to let a member of his family or a girlfriend escape, the next morning he would have to explain the footprints in the gravel to his commanding officer. So they thought of everything. Final event. That evening, I broke away from the American party. We were staying at a hotel in downtown West Berlin, got in a cab and went out to a suburb of West Berlin for a dinner party that some acquaintances, mutual acquaintances, we had a mutual acquaintance, had agreed to put on for me. I had met no one at the party, including the host and hostess, but the host, a man called Dieter Elz, 
had just retired after some 20 years at the World Bank in Washington. So we had mutual friends in Washington, and they agreed to put this on so that a White House speechwriter could get to know some Berliners. So we chatted about the German weather and German wine, and finally I just said, you know, I was told today that you've all gotten used to the Berlin Wall. Is that true? Silence. And I thought, Kornblum was right. I've just committed some kind of gaffe, and we don't want the president to commit this gaffe, whatever it is. And then one man raised his arm and pointed and said, my sister lives just a few kilometers in that direction, but I haven't seen her in more than two decades. How do you think we feel about the wall? Well, they went around the room, each person talking about how much he hated that wall. They hadn't gotten used to it. They'd stopped talking about it, but they hadn't gotten used to it. One man talked about walking to work from his home to his office each day. He would take the same path. It would bring him under a guard tower. A young man each morning with a rifle over his shoulder would peer down at him with binoculars, and he said, we, we speak the same language, we share the same history, but one of us is an animal and the other is a zookeeper, and I have never been able to decide which was which. And then our hostess, a lovely woman, she is still a lovely woman, we're still in touch, Ingeborg Eltz, charming, gracious, but she became angry. And she said, if this man, she made a fist of one hand and slapped it into the palm of the other, if this man Gorbachev is serious with this talk of glasnost and perestroika, he can prove it by coming here and getting rid of that wall. Well, that went into my notebook. <laughs> the point was, I'd seen that speech, and I knew Ronald Reagan at this stage, and I knew that if he had been there in my place, he would have responded to the power and the decency of that remark. Back to the White House. Wrote a couple of extremely bad drafts. There was one in which I was trying to work out the audience in front of him would speak some English, but it would be rudimentary English. They'd be German. The television audience, of course, would be American. We could give him some lines in German, some lines in English. So in one draft, I, put, I wrote in, Herr Gorbachev, machen Sie dieser Tor auf. And my boss, the chief speechwriter, Tony Dolan, said, Peter, when you're working for the president of the United States, you give him his best lines in English. <laughs> So in it went. <clears throat> the draft went to the president on a Friday afternoon. He reviewed it over the weekend at Camp David. We speechwriters had a meeting with him on Monday, Monday, May 18th, if I recall correctly, 1987. We went around the room talking about various speeches that uh, we were working on. And when he got to my speech, uh, Tom Griscom, the director of communications, my boss said, Mr. President, do you have any comments on Peter's speech? And Ronald Reagan just said, well, no, I... That was a good draft. It's all right. <laughs> so we, all, we always went in. We, all, we, like everyone else, always wanted more of Ronald Reagan. So we'd go into these meetings. You'd think of a question beforehand that you could ask that might elicit something from get him talking. So my question, I was ready. I said, Mr. President, I explained that I'd been to Berlin, and I explained quite an interesting fact. I had learned that depending on weather conditions, they'd be able to listen to his speech by radio on the other side of the wall in communist Europe and if the weather were just right they'd be able to pick it up by radio in Moscow Mr. President said I thinking I'd get him going 
Is there anything in particular you'd like to say to the people on the other side of the wall? And I can still picture this as, truly as if it were yesterday, which I suppose is a sign that I'm using phrases like that, that I am getting old. Um, I can truly picture this as if it were yesterday. Ronald Reagan just thought for a moment, and then he said, well, uh, there's that line about taking down the wall. That's what I'd like to say to them. That wall has to come down. So I walked out feeling disappointed. What was that? I just, all he talked about was something that was already in the draft. Turned out, <clears throat> he knew what he was doing. The speech then went out for circulation to the staff. And for the three weeks from that moment until the president delivered the speech, the State Department, the National Security Council, and the diplomat in Berlin fought it. It was naive. It would raise false expectations. The chief of staff, Howard Baker, said that it just sounded unpresidential to him. George Schultz, the secretary of state, said that he was concerned it would put Gorbachev, by naming Gorbachev personally, it would put Gorbachev in a difficult position in Moscow. On and on this went. In fact, Tom Griscom, as I said, the, the uh, director of communications, now an editor of the Chattanooga newspaper, very fine man, Tom Griscom. But the State Department and National Security Council began sending alternative drafts over that would change this or that, but always the central line was missing. And Tommy would call me over to say, wait a minute, now tell me again why you are, want to argue in favor of your draft and why you think this draft is weaker. And one of those meetings I got called over and there was Colin Powell sitting there. And highly decorated soldier, then Deputy National Security Advisor Colin Powell went right after me. And I, a 30-year-old who'd never held any job in his life other than speech writing, went right back at him. <laughs> and this went on and on and on. And the president who was going to the Venice Economic Summit before stopping in Berlin, the staff flew to Italy. Now, at this point, I'm no longer, I was not part of the traveling party. But Ken Duberstein, who is my source on these events, the deputy chief of staff, was with the president. The staff, it was a kind of failing if you had to take a, a staff failure, understandably, if you had to take a, a decision back to the president to re-decide. But Ken Duberstein, this fight would not die down. State Department and National Security Council kept pressing. And the reason that, nobody did, that they didn't just say Robinson, yank it out, was because everybody had heard Ronald Reagan say that he especially wanted to deliver that set of remarks. So back and forth, back and forth. Ken Duberstein finally sat the president down in the garden of some palazzo in Italy where they were resting up before the Venice Economic Summit began and went through all the arguments against this passage in the speech. He had it with him. He had the president reread the central passage. They discussed it for a time. And then Ken said, <clears throat> Ronald Reagan got that twinkle in his eye. And he said, now, uh, Ken, I'm the president, aren't I? <laughs> yes, sir, Mr. President, we're clear about that much. So I get to decide if that line stays in? Oh, yes, sir, it is your decision. Well, Ken, it stays in. <laughs> now, at some level, all this, for me, young speechwriter that I was, this was a very intense experience, but at some level, I never really doubted that he'd stick with the speech as drafted because of that sound. You don't have them, and it's not worth your time, but believe me, if you read the State Department and National Security Council alternative drafts, they were 
boring. They lacked any sense of conviction. They were the background noise. They weren't the trumpet. And uh, so somehow or, or other, and this, what's fundamental, I wrote the speech, but all I was doing was trying to channel in some way Ronald Reagan. It was his speech. And all I was doing was trying to match that trumpet-like sound. Final scene. Again, Ken Duberstein is my source. The president and Ken Duberstein are in the limousine in Berlin, driving to the Berlin Wall where the president is to deliver this speech. And the State Department that very morning has sent in yet another alternative draft. (laughs) So the president says no. He's going to stick with the original draft. And then he leaned over and slapped Ken on the knee and said, the boys at State are going to kill me for this, but it's the right thing to do. Now, now the Soviets themselves may in a limited way be coming to understand the importance of freedom. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Certain foreign news broadcasts are no longer being jammed. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state, or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West or to strengthen the Soviet system without changing it? We welcome change and openness, for we believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty The advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. (laughs) Mr. Gorbachev. Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Powerful words there. Um, certainly powerful words, wouldn't you say, Alex? I just, I get chills, yes, and tears in my eyes. I know, I know, it does. And, and you know, I think it's, it's moments like those that you can look back at today, and they seem, when you look back, history has that element of hindsight that, you mm-hmm. know, you don't question decisions that were made, but that was really... Prudence in action right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't help but see the parallels to what we face today and even the segment we covered earlier about, you know, a president today that is constantly questioned by advisors and by the State Department bureaucracy. Um, you know, no, it's crazy to move the embassy to Tel Aviv. It's crazy to leave the Paris Climate Pact. And, you know, perhaps um, sometimes the best decisions are the hardest decisions to make in the, in the moment. And uh, we see that. Yeah, certainly. And we also see powers, uh, you know, great powers, seemingly insurmountable powers like China. Um, 
you know, who, who we, you know, and, and the president has been trying to deal with China as well. Um, you know, things that we don't ever foresee happening, like the fall of the communist regime in China. Right. I wouldn't doubt that that could happen in our generation, in our lifetime. Well, I think we all, we all pray that that, that could happen. I mean, yeah. um, yeah, it's something that people don't often say, but it's something to think about on this, this Veterans Day weekend and also the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. You're listening to American View right now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. So then and there, Ronald Reagan spoke um, to Berlin, to the world, to, uh, about things that you know, many people didn't think he would say about a call for freedom um, to, to free the people of West Germany or East Germany. Um, now we return to the speech for one more piece that, that Peter Robinson, this speechwriter from the Reagan years, had to offer. One more piece of advice and one more quote from Ronald Reagan that just proves all too relevant to the problems we face today. One um, final lesson, it seems to me, is simply the sheer worthiness of the American experiment. Ronald Reagan loved acting and rant. You can almost define him by his loves. There's a lot that Ronald Reagan loves, acting, ranching, spending time with his wife. By the time he entered politics, giving that 1964 speech, he was already over 50, and he was already wealthy. He didn't need the trouble. But he devoted the rest of his life to public service, even so. He recognized at some fundamental level that this republic made a claim on him and on his best energies. One final glimpse. We're at war with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind in his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said if we lose that war and in so doing lose this way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those who had the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening. Well, I think it's time we ask ourselves if we still know the freedoms that were intended for us by the founding fathers. Not too long ago, two friends of mine were talking to a Cuban refugee, a businessman who had escaped from Castro. And in the midst of his story, one of my friends turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. And this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. If we lose freedom here, it could be lost everywhere. Those words were spoken in the 1980s, but you know, still now today, it seems they prove all too relevant. Mm-hmm. We, we might not have um, a Ronald Reagan, but we do have other leaders that um, are here to help us lead us through this time. And I think you know, as we approach an election in which the Democratic Party has become fully socialist, you just can't ignore. You can't ignore the you know the importance of these words. Yeah, we're only one generation away. Only one generation away, and that's that's what we hope you remember on this Veterans Day weekend. Um, that we uh, think about um, not just why those who fight, but what we're fighting for. And many of those fights don't just take place on the battlefield. They take place in classrooms, on news channels, on the radio, and uh, all across this great land. So God bless you all. God bless America. Have a great Veterans Day week. 
you know, let the celebrations continue. Isn't that what we yeah, do best in America? Right. We we just make everything bigger. That's right. So have a great one. I'm Ben Dietrich. And I'm Alex Nestor. This is American View, Radio Free Hills 101.7 FM. We'll be back on Thursday to discuss impeachment.